moment when it really looked bleak, like they were gonna not fund us, and then it would mean the eventual end of my company, I really had to say, okay, what is the worst that could happen? Losing everything. Okay, well wait, I'm not losing everything. They can't take my kids, and they can't take my husband, and they can't take from me what I did to build this. And if I had to build something else, even if it was beach chairs, I could build it again. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Rebecca Minkoff, to our show today. Rebecca is the co-founder and creative director of her namesake company, Rebecca Minkoff, a global lifestyle brand that spans apparel, handbags, accessories, footwear, and jewelry. Rebecca moved to New York City at only 18 to pursue her dream of becoming a fashion designer. In 2001, during the week of 9-11, Rebecca designed a version of the iconic I Love New York t-shirt, which became an overnight sensation. A few years later, Rebecca designed her first handbag, the Morning After Bag, which took her to the next level and served as building blocks for her highly successful brand. Rebecca also has created a community of superwomen and devotes resources and time to promote other female founders through her podcast and the Female Founder Collective, which is a platform she co-founded to support and invest in women-led businesses. Rebecca also recently wrote her first book, Fearless, which is a must-read for all aspiring entrepreneurs and is out June 15th. Although Rebecca is known as a global fashion powerhouse, her path to success didn't always go as planned as we'll talk about today and was far from easy. We'll talk to Rebecca about how she built her business from the ground up with very little money, what it means to live a fearless life, the power of relationships in business, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes. And I know we talked about this a bit before the interview, but you have been on my bucket list of women to have on the podcast. You exude the mission of women being very vulnerable and real about their entrepreneurial journeys. And I just also want to acknowledge you for all that you've done for women entrepreneurs and continue to do. So it's truly an honor to have you with us. So thank you again. Of course. My pleasure. So I want to jump right into this. You know, I actually wanted to start with one of your Instagram posts, actually, that you posted for Mother's Day. You had a beautiful photo with your three kids and you wrote in there, what a year it's been to test us in more ways that we could even imagine. People know you as a business icon, a fashion icon, but you're also a human being and a mother to three young children. So I just want to genuinely check in, you know, how are you doing? Because I know this past year has been so tough for entrepreneurs and also women and mothers? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that the months of March to June, uh, sorry, March to July were incredibly difficult as they were for everybody. We were managing Zoom and I had a two-year-old and work and cooking and laundry and cleaning. We've all been there. Dividing the duties, I feel, I don't want to say lucky, but I chose a partner who we're both 100%. And so I didn't have to do all the cooking and cleaning. I had support there, but I will say that my mental state, you know, even though I could get through, it was not good. I wasn't meant to be a teacher. I wasn't meant to try and manage it all. No one was. And I knew that for me to continue running a business, for me to continue employing people and showing up and being able to do what I do best, I couldn't keep that situation going. So we made the decision to temporarily move down to Florida where schools were open 
I put my kids in school nine to five every day. Mama came back. I was like happy to be a mom again. I was happy to be a wife again. I was happy to, you know, we got support. Like we live with my parents during this temporary time. So I realized not everyone has those options, but for us, I was willing to do that in order for me to know this is what I need to perform and I can't do it the other way. So we'll be back in the fall in New York now that things are opening up and schools are back. So I've been a lot better since July. You know, that was what I had to do. And is it a pain in the ass to fly up to New York all the time? Yeah, but I'm willing to do that to ensure that my health and the health of my children is where it needs to be. Absolutely. No, I appreciate you being open with that. I did read that you moved in with your parents and you were sleeping in a bunk bed, your husband with your two kids. Yes. So it's real. So I appreciate you just opening up about that. And it actually takes me to my next question. You know, you talk a lot about your mom being a huge inspiration in your own life. The fact that she really taught you how to work hard and also not expecting everything to be handed to you. So I'd love to hear more about, you know, maybe some of the earlier teachable moments that your mom really Really gifted you that you think has impacted who you are today? I think it comes down to the simple fact of when I wanted a dress, she said, I'll teach you how to sew it or smaller little subtle details. You know, when I was a dancer and all the dance moms would lovingly sew their daughter's shoes together and the point shoes, she's like, you can do that. Or registering for camp. She's like, you can do that. Planning a trip, you know, when I was a little older and she's like, you can do that too. So it was this mentality of, I'm not going to do it for you. I'm here to support you, but you have to figure this out. And so that type of behavior that I had to learn how to do things on my own forever pays for itself because there's not something that I'm like, oh, I'll figure it out. And I know that's something that you're trying to teach to your children today. Also, just figuring things out and you're, you know, more hands-off type of parenting style. Yes. It, that is a constant work in progress. I would be lying to you if I said, you know what? I make them clean up all their messes or they're doing the dishes. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? If she doesn't do it, I'm too tired at the end of the night to like go through the motions of forcing her to. I'm just going to do it. And I'm trying to figure out how that plays out in my own life because my mom and dad were much more strict. I don't know about you. Like when they said something, you snapped too and you did it. But I'll say something and my kids are like, well, I'll do it later, mom. And I'm, and, and I'm just like, how does this work? Why are these children <laughs> so entitled? And I'm making them do a lot of things. Yeah. And it's interesting. I know you talked about even growing up, your father was a doctor, your mom was a nurse and, you know, they could have gifted you everything, but they really made you work. And I know you said sometimes you grew up thinking you didn't have a lot of money because they didn't give you anything, you know? So I just thought that was interesting also to just kind of hear about your upbringing there. One thing that you also mentioned, you know, in high school or even earlier than high school, you were a big dancer, right? You were very much interested in that field. I'd love to get your perspective on why you didn't pursue that, because I think there's a few things that happened in your upbringing that kind of pushed you into the world of design. Yes. Some were physical limitations and some were mental. I think that on the physical limitation side, I did start dancing a little later. Misty Clopillon is the exact opposite. She started dancing later and look at her now. Yeah. I think that's one in a million. So I started, you know, at eight. Most of these girls start at three. So from a physical perspective, my body, the bones, all that was not working for me. Then let's add a C-size breast and five, nine at 16. And with the standards of ballet, you don't look a certain that that is the way that that world views how you should look. And you can't partner with anybody because all the boys haven't hit puberty and they're shorter than you. 
And so I was in the back always in the dark. And I really took solace in the design room. I went to a performing arts high school and I was like, well, I might not be in the show, but I can make the costumes. And I became obsessed with it, you know, about design, pattern making, draping. And the teacher was like, this kid liked my sewing class. Let me teach her everything I know. And so she really went the extra mile to make sure I had an incredible training with her so that when I did go to start my own company, that wasn't something I had to worry about. I knew how to design. And I know, you know, when you graduated high school, you were considering potentially being a doctor like your dad. And I know you went to John Hopkins and you were like, this is not for me. So I'd love for you to take us back to that moment when you were 18 and how you decided to move to New York without any massive job waiting for you. But can you take us through that journey in your early or late teens? Yes. So every, you know, I think it's the the same for everybody you, in your junior year, you start looking at colleges and I had checked out a couple and I just got this feeling of I'm ready to start working. I'm ready to start being in the industry. And again, I couldn't decide between medical or, or design. And I was like, let me go to a medical school and check it out. And I was just, I don't know. I just was like the thought of spending the next 10 years learning before I can work. I don't think I'm that type of person. Like I have to be able to just know that I'm going to guide my destiny a lot sooner. And so my brother knew I was interested in design. He came home from a party one night and was like, I have a phone number. He's a designer in New York. Why don't you give him a call? And so that 10 minute call was like, Hey, what's your name? What do you like to do? Yes. You can be my intern. When do you want to start? Not typical of interviews, but he, I guess, saw something or heard something through my brother and took a chance on me. So I moved to New York. I didn't have anywhere to live. My parents made a, a week arrangement with my cousin to babysit their daughter in exchange for sleeping on the playroom floor. And I took it. I was like, whatever it takes, man, I will do it to be in this environment and get started. I love that. You know, I actually have respect for your parents for allowing you to go because my dad always told me, you know, if you want to live in New York, you have to make at least six figures to survive because it's not cheap. So props for them even allowing you to go there and figure it out. I, I think that's pretty beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will definitely share. I didn't, it took many years before I made six figures. I was making $23,000 a year when I started my company and I made that for many years. And it wasn't until seven, eight years in that we were like, oh, we can pay ourselves a little bit more now. Yeah. And I'd love to dig into that a little bit later. It just shows, you know, even when the company was doing well, top line, you and your brother were reinvesting the money into the business. So I'm glad you brought that up and we'll definitely dig more into those fun details a little bit later. So, you know, you moved to New York at the age of 18. You're working under this designer for a few years, taking classes at the Fashion Institute of Design at Night. And I know the week of 9-11 was pretty big, you know, not only monumental for what was going on in New York City and the world, but also at the same time, your boss gently fired you, as you've mentioned that same week, which felt like a gut punch. So can you take us back to that time and kind of explain what was going Going on in your mind during such a tough week because it was very pivotal in your life. Yes. So I was working for this designer. His name is Craig Taylor. He no longer has the business. He sold it many years ago. But I guess pre-social media, pre-websites, I would get my work done very efficiently. And the CEO knew that I had a passion for my own stuff and she would allow me to work on it. And I think she could begin to see pre-9-11, you know, the tug of me wanting to just work on my own things and the frustration she could sense when I had to do something within the company. And so 9-11 hit, 
the office was closed for several weeks. I was down at the site volunteering before it was like officially taken over by FEMA. And that was the most important thing to me. September 10th was my first fashion show ever. Wow. So, and it had industry, you know, some industry there. I'll be like, maybe one or two, <laughs> industry, mostly parents and proud aunts. But the next day it was like, we, the world just shook, you know? And so that became something I felt the need to do. And, and around the same time, obviously their business was suffering. And she called me and she said, you know what you're doing, go do it. I'm here and I love you, but I either need you hundred percent or not at all. And I was like, but wait, can't we work out an arrangement? You know? And she's like, no. And so I had to spring into action. And I had, I was lucky enough that there was a website, a nascent website selling things. And she would call me and place small orders. And when I got fired, you better believe I called her. I was like, all right, so can we uh, ramp up these orders here? Because you're now my only source of income. And then when the t-shirt that I had made, the Isle of New York shirt, I actually sent that to an actress, Jen Elfman on 99. Okay. So before. It was before. She wore it on Jay Leno several weeks later and it sparked this, you know, international wildfire of people loving and wanting that shirt. So while it was an unfortunate, horrific stance that caused it, there was a bright spot in that I was making the shirt. I was donating the proceeds to charity and it got my name out there in a way that I could knock on more doors and say, I don't just have a shirt. I have a collection. Sure. And, you know, I'm curious if your boss at the time didn't let you go, do you think you would have jumped full force into launching your own brand? Like, did you have the confidence at the time? I had the confidence and naivety. I think sometimes that's a good combination for doing dumb things, (laughs) but I definitely, I had like a seven piece collection of items. I was selling in two or three boutiques around the city and I just was like, all right, now's my chance. And I had already known, like, if I'm going to work this hard, I want it to be for myself at the end of the day. Could I have learned a lot more and been smarter about decisions I made? So much, yes, especially on the business side. But I'm here now, so it turned out okay. It worked out. No, and, I, and I'm glad you're bringing this up because it's definitely a realization I had 10 years into my career. I wasn't as early as you just thinking, I'm working so hard. I think I'm ready to do it for myself. You know, when you were that early in your career, did you have any financial fears, right? You were saying you weren't making that money. You called up that one supplier or one client you had just to ramp up the orders. Like any, did you have any fears financially at that point in your life? I guess I wasn't scared. Like, am I ever going to make it? My fears were more like, I can't go out to eat tonight. Or I thought that when you didn't pay your Con Ed bill, that they just turned off your electricity. What I didn't know is that they send two really large men to your door and they're like, you figure it out, honey, we'll be downstairs until you give us a check. So that was more the scary part was the inability to pay for living. Even, you know, like you said, six figures makes you comfortable, but $18,000 a year or 23 doesn't really cover much. Totally, totally. And I know, you know, even though you had a bit of virality with your t-shirt, your I Love New York t-shirt, you know, even four years into the business, you were hustling with your apparel line, you know, you weren't growing a ton and you were still working on the side to make ends meet, right? I believe you're a stylist. I think you even considered being a bartender at some point just to get some extra cash. And I know at that moment in your life, a friend from LA calls you, right? And asking you if you had a bag. So I'd love for you to share that story because I think there's so many highs and lows to that story that I think are definitely worth talking about. Yeah. 
So Jenna actually came back to me. We were having lunch in LA and she said, do you make bags? I have a role for a movie. It's going to be a pivotal part of the character. And I just lied to her. I was like, yep, I make bags, BRB. Yeah. And I went back to New York as planned and hustled. I obviously knew who to ask for where a factory was because I was making clothing and making leather goods, uh, leather jackets and stuff. So I knew that someone knew and the bag made it to set two hours after they started filming. There were delays and the assistant was like, it didn't make it and we're not going to reshoot. And for me, that was a nightmare. Like it was my last $1,800 or $1,600. And I had two samples made one for me, one for her. And I was like, okay, now what? Like that was it. That was the last of the cash. And I was like, I guess I just bought my first designer bag and I'll wear it because I paid for it. And enough women stopped me on the street and noticed something and who's your bag by. And it was something that I was like, maybe there's something here. Maybe I should do something with this. And I showed it to a friend of mine who was a buyer for a store in LA. She's like, I love it. I'm going to put it in the store. And then I'm going to get another friend to write about it for daily candy. So I think you could have the lowest low and then it turns into the highest high because after daily candy wrote that article, it hit a nerve with women in a way that every designer hopes to have happen. Absolutely. And, you know, taking it back a little bit as a hustling designer, spending all their money into creating this product, hoping that it would land on set, you know, when it didn't, how was that feeling for you when you're in the crux of things and you're wishing and hoping that you're going to get that hit and you don't make it, you know, did you feel like a failure? Did you think about quitting? Like what was your mental state at the time? I definitely felt like a failure. I didn't think about quitting, but I also was embarrassed. Here was a woman who could have picked any big designer and I disappointed her. And so my biggest source of nausea was I just disappointed a woman who took a chance on me and will I ever gain her trust back? And so that for me was the hardest. And and I knew that I would figure out, I don't know if I was that certain, I'd figure out the money that I now didn't have. But I was like, damn, I hope I just didn't like burn a bridge that I really desperately need. Sure. Well, it's beautiful to see that you did get that momentum shortly after. So even though you had a low, you know, you were building some momentum with your bags with that order in LA. And I know you're investing every single dollar you had to even create the product. It wasn't cheap. And I believe you went to your dad to get a loan, right? And he said no. So I'm curious, how did you think about funding the business at the time when, you know, you were just even trying to get these bags off the ground? So I had had an arrangement with my dad because I personally didn't qualify for a credit card that he would co-sign it, but he wouldn't make the payments. Okay. And so by the time I called him and I said, I'm finally going to make it. There's a store in LA that wants to buy the bags. You know, they bought them, they sold out. I need to replenish them. I need money. And he was like, that credit card that I co-signed for you is maxed out. You're paying the interest only, barely. He's like, I'm not going to do it. That's it. He's like, because I don't know how you're going to pay that money back. And he's like, call your brother. Maybe he'll help you. And so I called my brother and he asked me like a thousand questions. And then he loaned me 2,500 bucks, I think was what I needed. Got the order, got the check, paid him back. And we were just doing that dance, you know, and he could see that I kept coming to him for larger chunks of money, but then always paying him back. And he really started to make sure that how I was managing the business was actually not getting us into a deeper hole. And then he eventually saw that there was opportunity and really wanted to come on and guide it from a CEO perspective. 
And again, didn't take pay for many years to make sure that we could get it to a place where it was profitable. And when did he get involved? Was that shortly after you were gaining momentum or how many years into the business did your brother join you? We officially, like the bags took off in 2005. He didn't come work full time in the business until about 2011, but he was definitely in it and guiding it and being, you know, the business side of it for that whole time. Cause my head was just down with PR and design. It was like my full activities. Absolutely. As someone, I know you didn't initially fundraise, you were going to your dad and then your brother was able to help and you were always paying him back. Being in the industry for so long, is there any advice you have for women who are looking to raise money, You know, whether it is through VCs or through friends and family, any lessons that you've learned along the way? I think that there is a modern trend that every single business needs to raise money. They need to take in capital. And it's because that's what we see on magazines. That's what we hear about in the news. And I think then most businesses who never should raise money or take in capital are set up to fail because they go down a path they simply don't need. Main Street America wasn't built on raising private equity money or VC. Exactly. It was people taking a little bit of savings or some friends and family, building a business, living off the profits, right? That's how we knew it. And now it's like, oh, I got to go raise $5 million, $10 million, $1 million. So I think a business has to ask itself, what is it trying to do? Is that a business that should raise funds? Have other businesses like that raised funds? And if not, then yes, go to your friends and family, go do crowdfunding. You know, iPhone Women is an incredible place to raise capital as a woman. And if your business does fit the VC or the private equity sort of, this is what should raise money, then I say book as many appointments with firms that you never want to take money from. Because you've got to get really good at pitching and practice. So that when you take the meeting with the one you want, the number 101, you're smooth, you've worked out all your kinks, and you'll just be better set up. So I just tell women, like, stop drinking the Kool-Aid. We're not all Glossiers. We're not all Bumbles or Albas, right? Those are all incredible examples, but that is not the sole path to success. Exactly. And you can build a very sustainable, profitable business without even going down that route. It exists. And I would say a lot of the women on the podcast, most of them, maybe 70% have bootstrapped their businesses. So hopefully it just shines light on different ways to grow your business than what you kind of read in the paper, like you mentioned with fundraising. There's so many different options for women and you know anyone looking to raise money. Yeah. And I think that the minute you take money, it's not like everything goes away. Your focus then is on optimizing a return for your investors. So they're going to want you to do things that might not be right for the business, but because it accelerates their return. So again, you have to think you're, you know, it's a blessing and a curse and you're more married to these people than any marriage you'll ever have. So be careful. It might be worth the grit of bootstrapping or, becoming levers in uncomfortable ways because at least you own your destiny. Absolutely. And you know, that takes me to my next question. In the recession, I know the retailers you're working with were basically pushing you guys to lower your prices without compromising quality. Despite pulling this off, I know I think you guys were at around 20 million in revenue at that time. Your margins weren't strong then and you didn't have much cushion, but you always knew that you could pull the lever at some point and bring in that money. So looking back at the time, you know, what advice do you have for founders who are looking to launch products and how are you thinking about profitability? 
So at that time, yes, we didn't have much margin to give. We gave it away in order to stay in business. I think that you really have to hone in, you know, sometimes your customer and who builds you might not be who you were originally intending to be. You know, so if we look at it, when I started, it was the it bag for a smaller group of influential tastemakers. And then when we lowered our prices, it widened it to a bigger consumer base all throughout the U.S. versus just like the big cities. And they have certain thresholds of income and they have certain expectations of you as a brand. So did we start out with that customer? No, but we got her. And then it was about making sure that everything we had fit what she was expecting. And for a long time, we didn't do that. So you could buy a $195 bag, but then go spend $1,000 on a leather jacket. It doesn't make sense. So we had to sort of look, or why were my shoes more expensive than my bag? So we really had to look at the value and the ratio of where this customer is and make sure that everything else we added fit within that world, because that's who we ended up supporting and building this company. Absolutely. And I know you were saying you guys were kind of like a not-for-profit at the time. You weren't making a lot of money, right? You were bringing down the prices, just trying to get the product out there. At what point were you able to pull those levers, You know, whether it's increase the pricing or manage the cost a little bit better for your brand to be a little bit more profitable? I want to say 2009 or 2010 is when we had enough bags that were selling in huge numbers that we could go to our suppliers and say, we've now bought how many thousands of feet of leather, lower the price or to our factory. So the minute we had scale, we could leverage that. So it still was four years of pain, but then you get a couple margin points and each margin point becomes worth a million dollars. That's meaningful. Absolutely. And so I think, you know, it was constantly sort of take the low price that makes you slightly uncomfortable, amass scale and then negotiate. Absolutely. No, that's helpful to hear. You know, as someone who's launching a business and not hitting those numbers yet, I do uh, hope to get there and you have more negotiating power when it comes to your supplier. So it's great that that worked out for you. And what I also really appreciate about you and just your story in general is you've always followed your gut and followed your own path. So I know in the early days of social media and technology, not every designer and fashion brand were really embracing it. And I think you guys really were the lead in that. And I believe there was a lot of retailers at the time that even threatened you to not get so involved in social media and pushing your product out. And they were even saying, you know, we might not even carry you. So thinking about that moment when you are relying so much of your money and your revenue from these larger retailers, how did you have the confidence to trust yourself to kind of go down your own path and really embrace social media at that time? I think it was incredibly scary. Like you said, we were threatened with canceled orders or, you know, magazines not featuring the brand. Uh, It was degrading to talk to your customer. It was degrading to work with influencers. You know, we didn't have another vehicle or outlet. It's not like, again, we didn't have lots of cash to go place ads in Vogue or to give money to these department stores to give us more premier placement, which they like you to do. And so it was like, well, if we don't talk to her and we don't work with these people, we have zero way to appear to anybody. So for us, that was the right decision from a pure survival perspective, but also, you know, my brother had a technology background. And so in the way that I can tell you that yellow is going to be the color this summer, he could say, no, no, the world is going to move this way. It's just going to take a minute. I know that when he freaks out, I should worry, but if he's calm, I'm like, all right, I'll go with you on this one. 
Absolutely. And did that tarnish any of your relationships or did it all work out because they realized, you know, this is the future. This is what everybody should be getting involved in. It tarnished it for a while. And then those people definitely, it's funny to see the people that were such naysayers, you know, now spending the bulk of their marketing dollars paying these people. I love that. And, you know, in another interview, you actually talked about how there was a moment in the business and it wasn't during the recession, 2008, 2009. It was actually, I believe, two or three years ago where you thought the business wouldn't make it or it was in a tough time, which, you know, from the forefront, it's shocking because from us, it looks like the brand is growing. You're always coming out with different collections. What did you mean by that a few years ago? And, you know, how did you push through such a tough time in the business? Within the fashion industry, there's a special type of financing and they're called factors. So they advance you capital based on credit worthy stores, and then they collect it on the back end for a percentage. And it's an incredible way to be able to start production and manufacturing when you don't have the cash. With that being said, because they hold the purse strings, if at any moment they're uncomfortable with how much they're loaning you because it's backed by your inventory, they can say, oh, we're not going to advance you as much money as you need because the inventory doesn't match what we're giving you. It's called an over advance. So I reference this in the book, but they were like, we're uncomfortable. We're not going to give you this money, which meant we couldn't pay the factory, which meant we couldn't ship the goods. There's a whole trickle effect. And I think at the end of the day, when I called them with my brother, the fact that we had a deeper relationship than just money is what made that ability for them to change their minds continue. They did things that any banker looking at a spreadsheet would say, this is bad and it's risky. But because we had worked so hard to make it a real personal relationship with them and show up and support them in ways that were helpful to them, or speaking at all their charities or helping with all of their requests for students at FIT, you know, we built a strong foundation. I could say, if you do this, we're done. And there is no recovery. And we work too hard to have this be the end. So I can never underline enough, you know, to make sure that your relationships are solid because when it does get shaky, which it will, you're going to have to be asking people to do a lot of things they, they shouldn't do to support you. Absolutely. And I feel like the bigger your business grows, the bigger problems you have, right? That come your way. Do you ever build that stamina or resilience? Or is it something you're always working through with the problems that come your way with how big the business is now? You're always working through it. I have a newsletter on LinkedIn. It's called You Can't Make This Shit Up. Because every week, sometimes every day something happens, you're like, well, couldn't have seen that one coming. And so you're constantly like, all right, I'm just looking for the small little windows of time where something isn't going wrong and like, ah, a day. Nothing went wrong today. How amazing. Exactly. No, it's good to hear because I think just entrepreneurs who are launching or building businesses right now, just having that expectation, I think is important because it's not always going to be easy or perfect. The deals that you think are going to happen might not go the way you want. And I just think that's part of doing business and you just have to build that resilience to get through it. So it's helpful to even hear from your perspective, how often you're in those challenging times. Yeah. And it's beautiful. You actually mentioned, you know, a way you get perspective in those tough moments is you think about no one can take away my family, right? Like no one can take away my kids. I'd love for you to share more about how you kind of gain perspective in those more challenging times. Yeah. So at that moment when it really looked bleak, like they were going to not fund us. And then it would mean the eventual end of my company, I really had to say, okay, what is the worst that could happen? Losing everything. Okay. Well, wait, I'm not losing everything. They can't take my kids and they can't take my husband and they can't take from me what I did to build this 
And if I had to build something else, even if it was beach chairs, I could build it again. And so once I had that security within myself and the the things that are truly the most important, that gave me the, okay, if that's the lowest, I can live with that. Will it be terrible? Will I cry? Will I be uncomfortable? hundred percent, but I can live with that. And so that gave me the ability to not be as scared about the inevitable. Yeah. I love that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people listening in who want to take that leap in their career or start that business. And I think even the way you've thought about your life, you know, what's the worst that can happen, right? You have this experience. If this business doesn't work out, you can take those skills and start something else. And I think the confidence you have in yourself to bounce back and build something new is really so necessary for an entrepreneur or anyone wanting to bring anything into this world. So I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like it makes things less scary. And I hope it motivates more women to jump into things and try things in their own journey. And one thing I also want to talk about is your book. So by the way, congratulations. I know it's officially coming out, I believe, June 15th. Yes, June 15th. That's awesome. I've heard a few of your excerpts on your podcast, and I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on a copy. And you know, it's interesting with the title being fearless, right? There's so many moments in your life where we've already talked about where you've done things, even if you had fear. So I'd kind of love to hear why you picked the title fearless and really what this book means to you. So I called it fearless because I wanted to start a dialogue of in this age of you shouldn't have fear and you can just magically make those emotions goes away. No, fear is an innate emotion built hardwired into us to keep us safe. But when that emotion spills over into following your passion, your career, your personal dreams, it can get quite confusing. And then you go, oh, I should listen to that. Well, you don't need to. And I think my goal in calling it that is, yes, you're going to be scared. Yes, there's going to be risks or moments in your life where you have that feeling, but you can't let that be what wins. And so my goal was providing you with 21 rules that when you are scared, you know, do I need permission to do this? Should I follow my gut? How do I help another, even though there might only be one spot for the woman on the team, like all these sort of things that you can do to have stable rules to follow, to help make that leap less scary. Absolutely. And I think for me, at least hearing somebody else's story and what they've gone through, it definitely helps have those rules really stick in my brain because it's like she went through it, you know, it worked out. And this is wisdom that we could all learn from you from and not have to make those mistakes in our own life. Right. So that's really amazing. And it's also interesting because I believe you also talk about what rules to follow and what rules to break. Right. I think as an entrepreneur, you have to be creative of how to get things across a finish line. So I really can't wait to jump into the book. So thank you for putting this beautiful body of work into this world. We'll definitely share with our listeners. Thank you. So one thing that I'd love to talk about because it's been a huge inspiration in my life and has really helped me is the power of relationships and networking, authentically networking. I know from even the early days of you hustling, trying to meet people to get the brand off the ground, that was very important in your own life. So I'd love for you to talk more about why it's important and how networking and meeting certain people and relationships have benefited you. I mean, networking has been the difference of me being successful or not. I used to count business cards like they were cash when I would get home every night and put them in my old fashioned Rolodex because that was an opportunity. You know, I, maybe I didn't know for what, but I knew it was an opportunity that if I needed to call on that person, I had their information. And I think networking today now presents itself differently. We no longer have business cards, but 
between all of the seminars, webinars, women's groups, clubhouse, the opportunity to find someone who can help you is at your fingertips, literally. And I think that, you know, you can get so much far advanced in your career by leveraging that. And that's different than social climbing. That's the idea that you're just going to use someone to get to the next level. But if you create genuine relationships and pay it forward when you can, I think that's a, a more authentic way to go about building your business. And does it take practice? Yes. Do I like, you know, did I used to like going around at a party and introducing myself? No, but I did it and I had to practice it with friends first and then go around. But I made a lot of relationships that way that I still have to this day. And I think it definitely does take a lot of practice. And like you said, nowadays, it's easy to connect with people, whether it's on LinkedIn or Clubhouse or Instagram. And I always tell people, you'd be surprised if you reach out to 20, 30 people, you'll get one or two people responding, you know, willing to give that five, 10 minutes or even 30 minutes just to pick your brains. And I think it's also really important to have a targeted ask or be very intentional about the conversation. I'd love to get your thoughts on that because I know you also think that way when people reach out or if you reach out to others? For sure. I think there's far too many people that say, can I pick your brain? Can we just get coffee? Can you be my mentor? <laughs> can you be my mentor? Don't get me started on mentors. <laughs> <laughs> You're just setting yourself up to fail. And when you want to get help and support from a busy human, the best thing you can do is first probably look to see if they've given the answer already. And then if they haven't, that's the, okay, I have one request. Where's the best place to make a bag? Where do I go if I want to crowdfund? You know, like really hone in on what that person's value is and how they can help you. And I think you'll get a lot more results. We're in a mentor culture where it's like, mentor me, please hand me your success on a silver platter. And no one's path is going to be yours. And so you should look for sponsors, right? You should ask questions to people that you want help with. But the idea that someone can like, prepackage a present for you and its success is setting people up to fail. You know, in your life right now, are there any mentors that you have or how do you think about mentorship in your own life? I don't really think about it like that. I think about it as I have peers that are doing incredible things and I have, they're a phone call away and I can say, what did you do for that direct consumer campaign? Did you do TV? Was direct, you know, is, was direct mail working? And I just literally asked, you know, I see what they're doing and I'm like, how'd that work? Anything you learned, how should I learn it? But they're not these mentors, which I get, it also gives the idea that they're better than you. They're more experienced than you. And so I think I gain more from women that are my peers, that I can understand how they're thinking and then apply it to my business. I couldn't agree. You know, as someone who is recently launching a business, I think the biggest value add outside of these podcasts, I'm learning so much is finding women or men who are kind of along the same path, right? We're all building our businesses because you're going through the same struggles and you can kind of share what works with each other versus if you reach out to someone who is maybe 10, 15 years ahead, they might not remember the nitty gritty of what was helping. And back then it was very different. So I completely agree. I think really tapping into peers and building that community, if you don't have it, could be a huge value add if you're 
looking to launch and start a business. So I definitely agree with that. Switching topics a little bit, you know, you have three kids, young kids, and I know you mentioned the word balance is just horrible, right? The word doesn't exist. You mentioned, you know, there might have been someone who created this word just to make women feel like failures because it's so preposterous. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on balance and really any advice for women who are looking to really thrive in their careers and be an involved mother, which many of our listeners definitely fall into that group. Yeah. So I think that we all have to take a step back and go, where did this false expectation come from? Men have never had balance. Go back 10,000 years. They're the ones that had to go get eaten by bears to bring home our food. So they've never had it. So, so far, humanity has not achieved balance. Okay. So let's take that word and throw it away. I would say it's important to have boundaries and your boundaries are going to be personal to you that are going to be very different from the woman or man sitting next to you. And as much as we want to compare, and I'm guilty of it, wow, she cooked a meal and exercise and got her Botox and went out on a date with her husband and then had to drink with a friend and was home in time for dinner. Okay, that's incredible. But I think that you're going to need to test your own boundaries as I have and go, okay, this is my comfort zone. And those boundaries are always going to flex and change. So the more kids I have, the more I have to put my boundaries like, okay, no more email on the weekends or really be done by 630 every night, or I only travel X amount of times per year. And am I saying no to opportunities? Yes. And if you work for someone, is that dialogue with them going to be harder? Yes. But I think one of the silver linings of COVID is now people see what's in your backyard. And so I think it's on us to demand and say, hey, boss, I'm done at 630 every night. As you can see, I have a family. And so I'll be offline when they go to bed or, you know, I'm getting, as you can see, I'm getting my work done in a regular work day. So I think it's on us to, to push those boundaries as we can and demand change because it will never change unless we stick our neck out and say, you know what, this doesn't work to be changed to the computer 24-7. Absolutely. And it's something that a lot of the women on the podcast have also mentioned is balance for you might look very different for another family, right? So you just got to do you and what makes sense for you and your partner and your kids and not really look to see what anyone else is doing. So it's good that you also brought that up. And one thing you mentioned, you know, the struggles with comparison, whether it's in your personal life or comparing your journey to someone else's journey, Is that something that you continue to struggle with or any tips that you have in terms of really being in your own lane and not really comparing yourself to somebody else, whether it's from a business perspective or even your personal life? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that comparing ever goes away. I used to just compare and then be a victim. Why does she get that? Why does that happen to her? That's not fair. And then I was like, oh, that happened to her? Screenshot. Hey, you think you can get me this opportunity, publicist? Or I'm going to reach out to that person myself and be like, hey, I just saw a blog on the cover. You want to consider me? And it's uncomfortable, but you can't just sit around and wait for stuff to happen. So now I sort of use the, oh, that happened to her? Okay, I'm going to get that too. It's shifted my mindset. And then as, as a mom or on the personal side, of course, you know, I'd be lying to you if I said, you know, oh, she has nice abs. How'd she get those? Oh, she wakes up at 5 a.m. I'm not willing to do that. So I'm not going to have her abs. I'm sorry. You know, and so I, I also say, okay, what is the work they're putting in to the thing they're getting? And unless I'm willing to put that work in, I'm just going to shut up. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And in terms of the way you approach, 
it's not even competition, but if you see a peer or somebody else getting on that magazine or having that opportunity, instead of thinking it's competitive, it's like, okay, now I know that's possible. Let me reach out. And I think that's a really powerful mindset versus, you know, thinking, oh, she got this. I can't get that. So I think the way you think through it is really helpful for our listeners. You know, what are you most proud of that a lot of people may not know about you? Oh man, that is a good question. What am I most proud of? Well, I birthed all three children caveman style. So I'm really proud of that. (laughs) Yes, that is huge. I actually was reading about your birthing story. I think it was with your son, Luca. And just, there was an article where you talked about, you know, a lot of the people around you were pushing you not towards a natural birth, but you were just so fascinated about it. And our bodies were created for that. So major props. I haven't gone through my own journey of kids, but to have three kids naturally, I mean, I'm sure you just felt like a superwoman afterwards. For me personally, afterwards, it was like I faced something that I wasn't sure I could do. It was a challenge that would have been so easy to just be like, tap out, get the epidural in or slice me open. And I was like, if I can go through that, I honestly felt like I could go through anything. Like nothing pales in comparison to like feeling everything that you feel when you had a baby come out of you. Oh my gosh. So do you think just in retrospect, now being a mother, you just feel like you are more powerful as a human being and individual? I think being a mother, A, added dimension to my life and it added value and it added like a reason to do what I do so that I can provide for these little babies that I made. Oh, they're so precious. I love it. And, you know, as a closing question that we love to ask all of our guests, wealth means so much more than money. And everybody has our own definition of wealth. At this point in your life, what does wealth mean to you? I think that wealth means to me, I just had to go back through the last year of images because I was searching for a, a picture and I couldn't find it. So I had to go through like 300, however many thousands of photos I have from last year. And I was like, wow, like this year was so hard and nightmarish, but we had so much fun during it, you know, as a family creating it and making it as positive as we could be. So wealth for me is being able to spend time with my family. Wealth is being able to continue to do business. Wealth is being able to have the relationships and friends that I have. And wealth is being able to experience incredible things that I've gotten to do because of my career. That's so beautiful, Rebecca. Thank you for joining us today and spending time with us. I can't wait to dig deeper into your book that comes out in June. So thank you again for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.